This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to Pros and Concepts. Welcome. Welcome. We're back. <laughs> what <are> you, I'm <laughs> imitating you. <laughs> <laughs> we just reversed the order there. And we actually introduced the new name finally. <laughs> like what, six months later? <laughs> I don't know how many episodes it's been. I think it was in the 20s that we actually changed it because we were just not searchable. It was just very difficult to find us. Even if you typed in my name, like my full name or your full name, it was difficult to find. So now Pros and Concepts comes up a lot easier. Thanks to... Anthony, who gave us the name, actually. Yeah. Instead of just the Concepts Podcast, we're talking about pros and cons of various issues, and we talk to pros. We are pros in... In concepts. <laughs> we're not pros ourselves. We're not going to pretend that. I mean, well, you, I guess, could claim to be. Yeah. Not at podcasting, though. <laughs> Certainly not that. No, we're not pros at that. We're pros at talking about concepts. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, let's go with that. Yeah, I'm going to stick with what you just said. Pros of talking about concepts. Talking about it, yes. So what are we talking about today? Today, we're going to be talking about self-handicapping. Steve, how familiar are you with self-handicapping? Oh, am I ever familiar? Being an addiction counselor, people self-handicap in all kinds of interesting ways. Another word for it, I guess, would be self-sabotage. That's more of a common word that I use is self-sabotage, but I think they're kind of the same thing. What do you think? Uh, we can see. So the definition of self-handicapping is, this is according to Wikipedia, our trusty go-to for just concise answers, is a cognitive strategy by which people avoid effort in the hopes of keeping potential failure from hurting self-esteem. They are obstacles created or claimed by the individual in anticipation of failing performance. End quote. So basically, it's things we do to try to make it so that way we can't perform at our best, so we have an excuse. That would be a behavioral self-handicapping, something we do or don't do, like not studying. And then the other side is how much we explain or tell other people about this. Because even if we stayed up all night and like didn't study, if we don't tell people about it, then it doesn't matter as much socially in that way. So the other half is claimed self-handicapping. The amount that you are going to tell somebody else that, oh no, I didn't even get enough time to study for this, or oh, I was up all night doing something else because blah, blah, blah. Right. So it's to protect our sense of competence in, in some way, it sounds like. Yeah. It seems like it's both for internal and external reasons because what's it called again? Perception management. I can't remember the Impression term. Perception management. That's it. Where we are trying to keep a certain face to the world. We want to be regarded with certain levels of regard. And a highly regarded man or woman. <laughs> yeah, you want to be you want to be regarded well. And so we try to put our best foot forward. And part of that can be when we know we're going to be judged, that we will do things that give us excuses socially to protect ourselves. Oh no, like my dog was just up all night making noise. I couldn't sleep. So that's why my presentation wasn't so good. So that's protecting ourselves socially. The other half isn't protecting ourselves internally. So we have a certain level of self-value, which is called self-esteem, how well we regard ourselves as inherently valuable individuals. And so we might do these things because we're afraid that what if I do my very best and I still fail? That would hurt a lot more than, oh no, I had this obstacle. I definitely couldn't have avoided it and definitely didn't create it myself, but it hindered my performance. So this isn't the best I could do. I could do better than this. Oh, yes. It always gives you a rationalization or excuse for why you didn't do so well as something if you don't perform perform as you would 
ideally like to. Typically, yeah. But it depends because, I mean, it seems like everyone, based on what I read, it seems like it's occurred across different cultures, different times. It seems to be basically anywhere any people are. And there is a gender divide. Statistically, there's a statistical difference between men and women doing it, men doing it more frequently for some reason. Though, Bear in mind what that means. We're talking about statistical significance. So that's if you pass that, it means that you have a 5% chance of being brought about, that outcome being brought about by chance. So it's not related to the thing we're actually measuring. So 95% of the time, if you get that result from this experiment, it should be due to the thing that we're manipulating, we're changing. And so in this case, there are actual experiments where we look at different self-handicapping. But to close that off, it just means that like a 1 in 20 chance that this outcome is what it means. If there's a bunch of different studies that found the same results, then it's more bolstered. It's a more solid result but if it was just a one-off we can't necessarily know for fact because anybody who plays dungeons and dragons you imagine you roll and you get a one it comes up more frequently than you would think and that's five percent are you explaining confidence intervals and statistics right now yes i am (laughs) that's the concept of for today (laughs) yeah no it's not i know it's off track but it's more like if we're going to talk about science we might as well introduce concepts of science like make it make a little more sense but perhaps it's a little off topic I should note here that uh, it is still more common for men to have higher rates of self-handicapping. I wasn't refuting that. That's what it may seem like I'm trying to defend men. No, there's no need to defend us. We do a lot of stuff wrong, so uh, I'll leave that as it is. I just got sidetracked thinking about science and (laughs) explaining confidence intervals, so uh, please excuse that. So what's this experiment showing? That it's more common that men self-handicap? I didn't actually see the experiment for that one. I saw experiments for other things, like just general how self-handicapping seems to manifest. So there's a 1996 study by the University of Wisconsin-Madison that had 135 male undergraduates play a pinball game. So they filtered them through a study before, like a survey beforehand, that categorized them as either high self-handicapping or low self-handicapping. If you're wondering how, they did that through questions like, when I do something wrong, my first impulse is to blame the circumstances, or I would do a lot better if I tried harder. So if people said that they agreed with these statements, they were more likely to be higher self-handicapping. So then they took those people and they put them in a setting where they were allowed to practice a reaction time exercise, I guess, before doing the competition. High self-handicappers who thought they were competing with somebody else for a high score, they practiced less and had more fun, and they also rated their abilities higher for some reason. But it's basically, I mean, the explanation that they gave was that they didn't practice. So any of the mistakes they made would be up to chance. It's not something that they actually put any skill in. So, oh, I didn't practice. So it's because I didn't practice that those did bad. But any good things that happened, they can be like, ah, look, I did that even despite not practicing. Oh, that reminds me of people who don't study. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly the same. Like in school, this happened all the time. People would be like, oh, I didn't study, whatever. I'm just going to do it. It's up late. It's or partying. staying up late, playing video games or binging shows or whatever teens and young adults do. Yeah. Yeah, and so if they don't do as well, they can just be like, oh, yeah, I didn't study anyways. I can actually do a lot better if I tried. Preserves your sense of core ability or competence. But if you do well, then it's like, oh, look, I'm smarter. Bonus. Yeah, I'm even smarter. Like, look, I did well despite that. Yeah. So it's a heads I win, tails you lose kind of situation. Because no matter what you do, if you self-handicap, then you can spin it positively. Yeah. It's very enticing for that reason. It is very enticing, isn't it? Yeah. There's no downsides to it. Or is there? Well, I mean, there are obviously downsides. You are hindering your performance, so you could have done better, and that can still lead to real-world outcomes. There are instances where actually certain excuses were more valuable than others. So there was another study, it was a 1995 experiment at the University of Utah, where they got people to write funny captions for cartoons, or rather 
comic strips. And if you said the excuse was, I didn't try hard, that was judged much worse than if you said that you had cough medicine that made you feel tired. So I guess not trying, I mean, that's a pretty easy explanation there. It's like, okay, well, if you just didn't try hard, then screw you. Like, why didn't you bother? But if you have cough medicine that's out of your control because you didn't know this was going to happen and you happen to take that because I guess you have a cough, it would be easier to say that that's not their fault. Take away responsibility. So in that case, I guess the self-handicapping is still working. But if they were honest by just not trying, then they would be judged harshly. Interesting. Yeah. And I guess this medicine idea, it's beyond their control because they needed medicine because they were sick. But what if they were like, oh, I just showed up to the exam and I was kind of stoned. I smoked too much cannabis. It's self-medication in that sense. I guess it depends because I would say a gradient. If you smoked in that morning and you knew you had an exam, then I think most people would probably judge you fairly harshly. If you had, say, taken an edible that was way stronger than you thought the night before, then I think it would start falling off. There would be people who were anti-drug or like very prudent people, they might judge you harshly. But I think more people would forgive it because it was, oh no, like this was miscalculated. Like I actually know of like these stoner identities as being a self-handicapping kind of doing addiction counseling. I know this as a thing where people will be constantly high, like high all the time. And they just do all of their schoolwork, all of their exams high. And they do probably just as well as everyone else. Like these would be a category of people that have kind of a mid to upper IQ naturally. They find school And easy. likely are very adjusted to having or the state of being stoned. Right, right. It'd be their new normal, it's right? their new normal, yeah. But it becomes a kind of identity. Like I'm the person that does just as well as everyone else while I'm high. Therefore, imagine if I didn't oh, I'm better than these people. Like, so it kind of gives you this like bonus points of competency. <laughs> it's a like a buoy for your ego. Yeah. You just get to think like, okay, I could be much better than these people. Whatever situation I'm in, whatever's wrong with it, it could be better if I really apply myself. But you know, I don't need to do that. Why would I do that? Then I'm like, it'll be too much effort, too much hassle, or maybe I'll leave my friends behind, or I don't know. It's just, I'd rather just, I'm happy where I am. Or I don't care about that stuff. I care about other stuff that matters. Yeah, I mean, we all have ways to make ourselves feel important and special, right? So do you see something wrong with that per se? I guess having this like feeling like you got something that makes you special. What do you think about that? The sense of something that makes you special, there's a narcissism to it and not full on diagnosable narcissism. In a small dose, it's kind of the building blocks of narcissism of, of requiring the sense of specialness and an external validation, a sense of being above others. This doesn't seem like it requires external validation. No, it's just not like, necessarily. it's like wearing different colored socks and thinking you have a secret. Like it's just something that you're doing possibly for yourself. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily require external validation it could be just this internal sense that like i'm a cut above you're in a hierarchical relationship to others in your life and it puts you on a hyper vigilance of kind of being on the lookout for people who are a threat to that or who might discover you so it can then lead to kind of this underlying anxiety in one sense of self and so you may have a high self-esteem as in narcissism where if you actually do the self-esteem surveys for narcissists they will answer that they are the best yeah they actually have very high self-esteem but it's fragile high self-esteem. It's when it has to be constantly worked at through this kind of vigilance. Easily threatened. Easily threatened rather than high self-esteem that is more solid. And so the research on narcissism is interesting as it overlaps because you can have high fragile self-esteem, which is really kind of this illusion of self-esteem in a sense because it's not really very healthy. It's putting you in a very comparison orientation to others, which is also very isolating. You know, lonely at the top idea. You, you uh, kind yeah. of, Thomas Joyner. By ego, separating yourself from others. Mm, 
Yeah, you're making a little island for yourself that nobody can yeah. assail. It reminds me of something John C. Maxwell wrote in a leadership book about how many managers or would-be leaders are not good leaders because they are too afraid of their subordinates threatening them, possibly becoming another manager or maybe even their boss. And so they try to like handicap those people in a way so that they can't threaten their position. And he points out that then you're limited to the people that are directly below you for your influence. And if you want to actually be influential, you have to be able to empower the people below you so that they become managers. So then you're a manager of managers or a leader of leaders. So then your reach is then exponential. So you can help organize and get things actually done. Right, right. We're talking about self-handicapping in a very different lens right now. It's more of how people with apparently high self-esteem are doing it through this false sense of self-esteem and it could be like even having yes men is is kind of a self-handicapping because if yes men are like yeah you're doing great you're actually self-handicapping yourself because you're just operating blind and kind of like putin going into the ukraine with a bunch of yes men like it was preserving his sense of power and self-esteem and and whatnot but at the same time he was really being ineffective in his goal so it's kind of a manifestation of pride comes before the fall yeah because then they're too prideful for that but there is actually times where we're more likely or less likely to self-handicap there are actual solutions to these things in case you're wondering we can shoot the shit more as we go but this seems related to what we're talking about so if you feel positively about yourself being evaluated is less threatening so generally self-handicapping only comes about when we think that we're going to be evaluated either formally or informally from our peers it doesn't really matter at work or with friends we're more likely to do something like blame something like oh like i slipped or i coughed or i sneezed you know like after you <laughs> botch a throw or something that's kind of i mean even if it's not true that's a claimed self-handicap like oh i was really anxious so If you feel positively about yourself, you're less likely to feel threatened by evaluation. So people with lower self-esteem are more likely to self-handicap, both behaviorally and claimed. So they'll actually do things to make things harder or for themselves, yeah, or they'll claim that it was true. As well, people who have low self-efficacy. So people, to differentiate, self-esteem is how valuable you see yourself, whereas self-efficacy is how competent you see yourself. Is that right, Steve? Yeah, yeah. You're trusting yourself to be able to overcome obstacles to achieve a particularly valued goal. So yeah, your competency versus... Versus your overall worth. Right. So those people, both groups, people low on both or either low on either can have higher rates of self-handicapping, but so do people with low self-compassion. That was a little more interesting. Do you say anything about self-compassion? Yeah. People who are highly self-critical, I guess you can say it goes hand in hand with a low self-esteem and beating yourself up when you fail to do something that you value. So that could be kind of related to the self-efficacy point. Right. I don't know if there's actual correlations between these things because like self-esteem and self-efficacy, they can be independent from each other. I don't know. I think it makes sense for those groups because if you think you're not competent or you think you're not valuable or you beat yourself up a lot, having excuses to rely on to like not completely fall apart, that makes sense. So whether just stated or actual handicaps, it still seems like it'd be a nice little crutch to keep it going. Mm -hmm. I would lump in fragile high self-esteem with low self-esteem it's kind of a contradictory way of conceptualizing it but this narcissistic fragile high self-esteem operates exactly like low self-esteem operates exactly like it eh well outwardly it seems exactly the opposite the person's like boisterous and proud and arrogant if fragile high self-esteem versus the kind of timid self-critical person you know they look very different on the surface but the things you explained there they're functioning very similarly underneath yeah I can see that. I'd like to see research on it. Now that like I've gotten into my research mode, it's like, hmm, is there actual research for that? But like other episodes, clearly, I'm just like, oh yeah, sure. You've got your research hat on today. 
Yeah, apparently. Like I was talking about science earlier. Yeah. To finish off the solutions, you want to focus on learning a skill, for example. Like, so if you focus on, hey, let me, let me see what it is. Right here. So in 2011, <laughs> three studies looked at German students who had self reported goals, and they found that. They were protected against self-handicapping when they focus on mastering a skill as opposed to like some sort of particular achievement. Because when we see it as like a learning process or skills, we know that as you're learning, you're not going to be perfect. If you start like doing archery now, if you don't hit a bullseye every time, you're not going to be like, God, I'm a piece of shit. Like, oh, I didn't do it right. Like, no, you you know you have to miss in order to eventually hit consistently. So it's fine. But if we just look at, say, achievements like getting good grades or winning a tournament, and we just focus on that rather than the process, we're just focusing on the outcome, then we start getting a lot more anxious about it and self-handicapping. This overlaps so much with one of our favorite episodes that we did on a fixed versus growth mindset. Oh yeah. Is that the, like the second or third episode? I yeah. Think? Third yeah, episode. Yeah. It's a really good one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You should go back and listen to it if you haven't. It's hilarious. <laughs> but uh, it very much is this focus on process versus outcome in, in a sense of so focusing on one's effort through the process versus like the evaluation aspect of that. Yeah, it seems like that comes up continually again and again. Like it just seems like a truth. Yet, how would you describe our education system is operating? The opposite of that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly the opposite. <laughs> so it's like, oh yeah, let's, let's build a system that encourages us to do the exact opposite. The thing that makes us more anxious and less productive do that. Oh yeah. The education system. I mean, for someone who went far in it myself, it's kind of contradictory, but I found a way to enjoy it and make it kind of my own. Cause as you get past high school, you get to kind of pick the topics you want to study and then you go further into that. But there's so many people who have like just terrible elementary and high school experiences, particularly those with ADHD or generalized anxiety or both where this performance anxiety, this evaluation anxiety, just really there's probably self-handicapping elements going on, but like systemically handicapping people who otherwise could flourish in different training styles. Hmm. What kind of styles are you thinking about? Like the opposite of study this stuff from a book and then take a test in a quiet room that makes you super anxious. And, you know, <laughs> and then we're going to evaluate you based on a number and then put it on a piece of paper at the end that's supposed to indicate your self-worth to everyone. It kind of reminds me, this is scientific management kind of, I think this probably has roots in that. It's been a while and industrial organizational psychology is not my strength. It was actually technically related to my minor, but it was always so dry. There were like pockets of interest. Like if you're going to an interview, women should wear perfumes with a male interview if there's only men, they will be regarded more positively. But if women wear perfumes with women, it actually is a negative. Whereas men never wear colognes because you will always be regarded negatively. This is in person, of course. But anyway, that's like one of the few things I remember from IO Psych. But yeah, scientific management is like about how I think we're trying to measure individuals. Back when like Psych was pretty young, I think it was more to do with like factory optimization, like how to get the most work out of each worker. And so they're trying to do that and measure them by numbers because you have to have something to statistically analyze and like it's more concrete, but that actually might be the flaw in the learning environment because it is more of a process and being like, you failed. I mean, I wonder about like the whole not allowing kids to fail or not putting those things, like whether that does help create more high, fragile self-esteem. Yeah, I'm not necessarily talking about like nobody's allowed to fail, participation ribbons, whatever, you know, that debate is around. It would require kind of an overhaul of the whole system in a sense. It would almost be unrecognizable. That's too much to really cover here, you know. <laughs> but I think the purpose of going to the systemic level right now now is to have people be a little bit more self-compassionate about self-handicapping, that it's not necessarily a flaw with them per se, but a lack of fit between them and 
maybe their situation or the system that they're in is creating a lot of the anxiety. We always kind of go to the systemic level. Yeah, we should probably we talk about the individual. Back to the individual level, I have a quote from Jake the Dog from Adventure Time, which is, sucking at something is the first step towards being sort of good at something, which is true. Like It is the cost of entry for any skill. It's actually trying and that includes doing it badly as you said many times in the podcast let's just do it bad <laughs> like make sure do, do the best we can <laughs> every yeah. time i said let's do it bad you always kind of like no let's do it the best we can i'm like no do it bad <laughs> no i mean like they're basically the same thing but like i'm reframing it like do it bad sounds like just put out anything put out any old garbage like which makes it seem like we don't value it which isn't true and also doing the best you can is like i guess within time constraints and all those extra caveats because we want to avoid perfectionism as well because that also like was it the perfect is the enemy of the good yeah. Because if you are aiming for perfect and will only accept perfect, then you won't even get good because you like get a good result because you won't even try. You're just like, it's not worth it if it's not perfect. And my problem with the slogan, do it the best we can, is an anxious mind will always find ways that you can do it better. And it kind of goes back into that perfectionism again. It's like, well, maybe I can spend an extra 10 minutes. Well, maybe I actually can just you know keep doing more. Well, I think we're speaking to two, two different audiences because... <laughs> We're both pushing towards our end of it. <laughs> As you, you've a few times called me a perfectionist when working on this, when I'm like, no, like your intro, like don't have Mike Blair where it's like distorting <laughs> for the intro where you introduce yourself in every episode. We don't want that. <laughs> so like you tend to be like it's good like i'm I'm satisfied with it and i'm like it could be better (laughs) so we're both pushing towards the extremes that we naturally tend towards yes how do you self-handicap i try not to but i mean of course we all do i was trying to think about that because like i'm always trying to like improve and do better and like take responsibility for the outcome of what happens as much as i can to be like what what could have been done realistically sometimes i mean that's a really valuable assessment and i know i'm like it seems like i'm sidestepping the question i just can't think of anything at the moment but in general when things go wrong because i'm thinking about that question like when things go wrong do you blame circumstances i try not to do that and even though it could be true i think what could have been done realistically and sometimes the answer is nothing you did the best you could in that time with the information you had like we're not going back and having regret like past tense decision making it's more at that time with what i knew and the skills i had could i have known any different and generally if the answer is no then you just kind of let it go but i mean i don't know how how do you (laughs) self-handicap probably shipping a result sooner than ideal like if i write an article or an ebook historically i would have this like drive to get it out as soon as possible oh that makes sense i always just thought you were like this is great but it actually does make sense as a self-handicapping because it's like if i rush this out and then it doesn't do well then well i rushed it out of course like i didn't have enough time to do proper marketing or something but there's it's also this paired with it's so rewarding to actually like have something out. Otherwise you're just like, you're sitting there, like I've experienced this for years writing a thesis. Like you're sitting there with this thing and it's just like, ugh. And so I don't know if I'm just like fatigued of not having work out, but being shipped for several years on end that by the end of my dissertation, I was just like publish, 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 like just, shipping out like all i wrote like two ebooks like a ton like almost 100 articles on my website like I, i've just been shipping like crazy because all of school is writing papers for grades and you don't really get that reward i mean it does make sense though because you're writing to do with things that took forever to get that reward right so like you got a ton of material after like really building it up and then now it's like mining that so it's like if you were to say really focus for like four months on something just doing research and becoming like as much of a pro as you can there 
you're just doing that as like your full-time job, supposing you're like independently rich or something. And then like you have a few months where you just like just really knock shit out and it would all probably be pretty good quality. But I don't know. Like, what do you think? Do you think that method supposing somebody it was doable given the living constraints like suppose that was something that was on the table would you think that would be more productive focusing for like four months and then having two months of like really intense just like publishing shit putting it together or for six months you are slowly doing it learning as you go and writing as you go kind of like the niche blog approach that we've both kind of used but i used more for dnd and coffee where you're doing the research and writing the answers to the questions as you go along i think research would probably support the second yes i like the second that's what i do nowadays with the email list, which is just kind of a brief snippet of what I'm thinking about based on some recent research that I've read. And then once the new content in the emails compiled to the length of a full blog article, then I'll put that together in an article. How long are your emails then? How many words I usually? Know. I don't I don't count. Really? Yeah. Oh, mine are like between a thousand and three thousand. Like, I think one was like six thousand words, but a lot of words. At least a thousand usually. I found a way that you self-handicapped. How's that? By not publishing. Yeah, I did the same thing. I didn't publish to my list regularly for years until recently, where it's now more regular. But you yourself writing that first email, like it, it took a while. It was like a real like process to get to get that first one out. Yeah, I mean it might be a form of self-handicapping. It's possible because like putting yourself out there in front of an audience is anxiety provoking of course like this was because you don't know what they want and you're trying to like you're basically talking to nothing for a long time and this time you know there's actually people getting it so you're like ah is this what they want i don't i don't know and so you have to try to get information from them but yeah i mean it was partially that but partially like like this for instance once you start it's i guess this is back to fear of hope kind of stuff like once i start i'll be expected to continue doing that and it's just an extra thing on my plate which is valid though because i had a bunch of other stuff to balance i mean all of us i think or self-handicapping is, is valid, but rationalizations. Yeah. Like it's, it's hard to avoid that, but like, that's what I mean. Like in that, this circumstance, I don't know, maybe I was, but I think at the time it seemed like I had more important things and already too much on my plate. Maybe. Yeah. And I guess I can say the same because <laughs> I was working like three jobs for a lot of years, but it always goes back to that most common gym excuse. Like I just don't have the time to go to the gym. It's hard. The line between rationalization and self-handicapping. Well, I, I would see a third variable actually. So think about this also is like, it took a reframe. Like now that I kind of learned from your approach of the emails, I'm actually pushing my site forward while I do it because by writing these emails, I'm also writing the posts. So I'm like getting even more of a return out of it, which actually is better because like in the past, I, I wasn't thinking about that. I was just thinking, this is just extra work I have to do. Oh, yeah. So now that I see, oh, I can actually use that to like develop my products with them or I can do it to like make more posts for my site by writing this for the email in, 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 on a timeline because it's weekly. I didn't realize that it would be a good force for that. And if I had known that, maybe I would have done it sooner. Right. <laughs> I probably would have. Yeah. So in writing the weekly email, you're creating the content. So it's actually that like you're not adding more work. And so, yeah. It makes me think about like the laziness thing. Like, is this actually a thing or is it that... Like it could be a lack of information or beliefs stopping it, limiting beliefs stepping in there. Oh, completely. Yeah. Like the reason why people don't go to the gym, I mean, on one level say it's laziness, but on another, you can say, well, there's information. Like if you know that going to the gym a half hour a day actually saves you an hour a day because you're more productive, you know, it's like, well, you're buying back your time. And once you kind of make that connection and then right or you realize that nobody really gives a shit like nobody's looking at you because like i think it might also be social anxiety like you're really out of shape and personally like generally i've seen that like people aren't bad to people who are very out of shape and actually i would help them out or do whatever i could to encourage them usually just leaving them alone and not like giving them a space basically (laughs) 
because because <laughs> I mean like people are like sometimes looking at them and you just want them to feel comfortable because like this isn't just a place for people who are already fit it's for anybody of course so but yeah, yeah sometimes the best thing you can do is just to, to not yeah just give them space <laughs> yeah. just make space imagine how intimidating that would be you get this bro coming up to you hey bro I got some tips I mean it depends on how they do it because like one guy corrected my form once and he did it very friendly so I was actually appreciative of that I mean I've tried to like, weed out the self-handicapping and that's why I, maybe I'm not seeing them or if because if I see them I will try to do my best to not do them so like for university I would drink way too much basically that was basically where my freshman 15 came from and I was like yeah it was probably getting to like definitely problematic levels not that I think I was addicted but more just habitually doing it so much and then after your first year I just cut back a lot. So like that definitely was something to do with it. Like I was also fairly depressed at the time and my schedule, I thought it was great because I think I started my first year with all my classes in three days. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, every other day was off. And I ended up just getting lost in time, not like time travel, but more like I had a sea of time. And so my schedule just got really off and I was just playing games late at night and just not doing the things I was supposed to do because I didn't have like any structure at all. So I think it might be self-handicapping. It might've been coping mechanism it might have been a who knows just habits i don't know <laughs> like yeah, well, I mean, definitely coping to some level, but that's one example. Or like staying up late. I, I guess I'm a nighthawk, but like I think one of the research things said that whatever time of day you're, is your peak is when you're most likely to do it, which is interesting in itself. Like a daytime person, like a morning person is most likely to self-handicap in the morning and a night person is most likely to do it at night. That seems odd, doesn't it? It does. I guess that's when we feel most alive, so that's when we're most likely to do stuff, maybe? Right, and this stuff kicks in when we're about to do stuff. Like procrastination, it's related to that fear of hope of, oh no, I'm about to do something and I better preserve my sense of competence. Grab a beer. Oh, it's not me. It's the beer. I'm tired. I can't do it. Uh. Yeah, you could be that or like, oh, I mean, now I'm like, now I'm drinking and I don't feel like it anymore. Like I'm just, I'm relaxed. I just want to have a beer, you know? What's wrong with having a beer and watching TV? Yeah, I deserve it. And so it. you're like, ah, let's have some friends over and then that'll wake me up. And then you just end up just partying all night. That'll wake me up. Then I'll really get some work done. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Oh, there's one final thing that helps to avoid self-handicapping is self-affirmations, apparently. It's limited forms where it's like thinking about something that matters to you or focusing on something you've done well in the past. So like bolstering your self-esteem or self-efficacy, essentially. I'm a valuable person even if this fails. Like I think it reminds me of one quote about what confidence is. Confidence is walking into a room and knowing that you'll be fine even if they reject you or yeah, basically that. Knowing that even if they don't like you, they probably will like you, but even if they don't, you'll be fine. Like that's that's confidence. Right. So I think that it makes sense to be like, this has happened in the past and I'm still alive and I'm doing well, doing well enough. So don't worry about it. Yeah. Relates a lot to that cognitive fusion stuff and the exposure therapy stuff we talked about before. Yeah, exactly. Drawing on what's realistic here. Maybe it's time that I kind of go into to my perspective on this you've been really hitting the oh, research yeah i'm done i'm done basically <laughs> okay. no wait, so there's only one i've actually one last thing okay what's that which is a 2005 study at rutgers university had students do a business aptitude test doing a self-affirmation by writing about something important to them like social issues or economics reduced self-handicapping hmm. so that was that was one way so just getting them to even just like basically reinforcing what i just said it just it reinforces it by writing it down or thinking about it well, what I'm hearing there is a values orientation. 
Oh, pulling it back to therapy, yeah. a counselor. I think, yeah, it's, it's basically more related to things that have to do with your self-concept. But that means if it is values-oriented, then that means that things that are closer to your values that are like assessment-related might make you even more likely to self-handicap because it's more related to how you see yourself. Right. If there was an assessment orientation to it, usually though that focus on values as they're doing in that writing exercise, it doesn't sound like it was assessment-oriented. It sounded like write something that's important to you. Oh, no, that was before the assessment. So they did that before being assessed. So they were focusing on the the things that were valuable to them. Yeah. Not being assessed on the things that were valuable to them. Right. It was like one group wrote about it and took the test. The other one didn't write about it and took the test. Got it. Got it. Yeah. No, that, that makes some sense. So focus on what's important to you rather than the assessment that's coming up. Like what matters here? Got this exam coming. Okay. Now I'm going to focus on like what's important to me. What are my values? What do I want to be about? Process what, oriented. What do I stand for? Yeah. So I guess the question before we move off of it, because you're dwelling on this point. Yes, dwelling. If you're at work and you're focusing on just doing good work versus impressing your boss, like do you think you need to do kind of a combination where it's like my boss values these things so i should play to that or do you think it's better to just follow and do the best you can doing like a growth mindset interesting probably the latter obviously but there's some kind of utility to the former so long as you don't identify with it like you can have a machiavellian approach to it and just be like i'm going to do the things i know that are going to impress them not because it means something about me as a person but because i know it's going to be useful for me yeah i think another framing though is that my question assumes that your boss gives you freedom because that's what we are both used to at this point. (laughs) So I think if we're looking at it a different way, because I remember having looking back at my jobs, like your boss would tell you to do something and it's something you may not want to do. But I guess the way we could frame that is either as a game or you're working on that skill. It's not your choice to work on that skill, but you can focus on the development of that skill. This is just practice and doing better. Yes. If you're like chopping vegetables and you're like, chop these 500 carrots and you're like oh, I don't want to chop the 500 carrots I'm like how efficiently can I get at it yeah, yeah. you can focus on the process and I'm like how can I develop skills to be the ultimate chopper yeah it is funny though that we have those games that are like simulators of jobs like there's literally a VR game virtual reality I think it's job simulator like yes. working in an office but yes. like when I worked at Tim Hortons I tried to remind myself that Tim Hortons is a cafe Canadian if you aren't familiar but it was a very close quarters one where pretty much everything was within swivel distance from you like one step away or so I made it a game of seeing how efficiently because certain machines would take certain amounts of time I had to actively do certain other things and I would make a game of like swiveling around and seeing like I could start this do that and like grab this thing and see how quickly you could get it out there's no reward but that actually made time fly a lot faster that is the reward I guess that I enjoyed myself more the reward is the process and in a values orientation that's exactly it too because the reward is I'm acting let's say the value is authenticity like the reward in itself is like I'm acting authentically right now. The process in itself is rewarding because I'm acting in line with my value. I never thought about that. Words, thoughts, and actions aligned. Yeah. <laughs> Congruence. But just to the fact that like, I'm not swiveling around, you know, you're valuing efficiency in that example. Like, if the value is efficiency, this the process orientation is how efficient can I be? It's independent of, well, there's an outcome orient- oriented part there, but you're focusing on the process, not so much some evaluation element of it. Yeah. Like I'm not going to have a breakdown if I think that I wasn't super optimal in the time it took me to deliver this order. No, no. It's like a gamified way of, of looking at it. So in a values orientation, it's like the reward itself is showing up to that value in the process. Right. Just doing it is the thing. Yeah. So what, what was you mentioned your half. So like what do you what are we talking about for your half? We're not half, but this may be a way to kind of summarize in a sense. Cleave it. Get some cleavage in there. <laughs> 
<laughs> not, not necessarily that. Got to have a cleft between your section and mine. Keep keep yourself not touching mine. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'll, I'll wrap it up uh, like with a bow. Like you know how you usually wrap up the endings real nice. Yeah, you're gonna try. It. You're gonna make an attempt. We're just reversing everything We're in this reversing episode. Roles here. So I'm focusing on the concept of self sabotage, which let's just say it's the same thing. But Dr. Judy Ho wrote a book on self sabotage, and she uses the acronym LIFE for why people self-sabotage. So L-I-F-E. L stands for low or shaky self-esteem. I stands for internalized beliefs. F stands for fear of change or the unknown. And E stands for excessive need for control. So if we're going to kind of summarize all those and wrap them in together, it's a lack of self-esteem, as we talked about in the beginning, a sense that you may not be competent related to the self-efficacy as well. I internalized beliefs maybe from childhood about like you are bad. Yeah, some someone kind of like criticizing you and making you feel like you're you're not good enough in whatever form it may take. So in whatever there is, there's an internalized unhelpful belief system about yourself or your abilities. F, therefore, it leads to fear of change or hope because change and something different is risky. Staying the same is self-protective. Familiar. Staying the same is familiar and it's predictable. Even if it's harming you, it's still survivable and you know what to expect. Yeah. And so when you don't feel like you can handle situations based on the self-esteem and self-efficacy, internalized negative beliefs, and you fear change, there's that kind of rigidity that we talked about in our last episode there in the E part of it, excessive need for control as a way to manage Oh, right. You've been going on about rigidity lately. And that's the opposite, I assume, of psychological flexibility. Yes. Yeah, because we were talking about that in terms of like systems. Like this is way off topic, but it's sort of related where we were talking about how it seems to be a parallel across various spectrums because one area, there's a theory that fascism is a result of capitalism, like dying. Capitalism under threat becomes fascism. Or I think we're talking about maybe even like different systems more generally as they become entrenched, they become more rigid. Oh, yes. A system that is disintegrated tends toward chaos or rigidity. What do you mean by disintegrated? Disintegrated meaning parts of itself are separated or suppressed, cleaved off. Oh, man. Think about this in decadence because the ruling class, the top people are segregated off. They're not being associating with the people at the bottom. The bottom people are being suppressed. So that is the same thing because that is becoming much more rigid and unwilling to change, which fascism is all about. Rigidity, hard me back to a glorious past, choosing a sort of like a victim to blame, a scapegoat of some sort. Yeah. It's interesting how this all kind of ties in. Yeah. And you go even bigger into the disintegrated ecosystem where it's like, I'm just going to remove the mosquitoes. Yeah. I always want to remove the mosquitoes. Yeah. Uh, if, if something's going to go, I'm going to remove them. But there's probably a problem. If you remove mosquitoes from an ecosystem, I mean, what happens? Do you know? Like you, you've read more in this area. I don't know about mosquitoes specifically, but that is a major food source for a bunch of different insects and that'll affect the entire food chain. Cause like if a bunch of spiders suddenly go extinct cause they can't eat enough or they were cut in half, then they might be overfed on by bats or birds or whatever eats them, lizards. And then those things will not have enough food. So then they'll be starving. So then like it may not lead to full like ecosystem collapse, but it will lead to chaos for sure because it'll have to be like oh shit like what's going to fill this niche like there has to be a food source so there may be like a lot more flies or something or all the things i just mentioned may certain ones of them that are less robust will either change or die off and then the system will look different because like there are 
ecological tipping points where it's called evolutionarily stable. If it's able to continue existing indefinitely because the system allows it to perpetuate itself, that's fine, but it may not be the ideal or the optimum. It might be just one of several. And if we were to shake the system hard enough, it'll maybe make that switch flip from A to B. So like a different form of that will emerge, which it kind of ripples out continually. It's, it's very interrelated. Yeah. And, and so on, on the societal level, when the society is disintegrated, as in there's a very high economic disparity between the rich and the poor, just kind of fractured politics of demonizing the other side and, and like trying to suppress each other and repress like these certain ideas, it tends towards chaos. And we have no shortage of seeing chaos happen in front of us everywhere these days. But then also tends towards rigidity. And that's where these these kind of fascistic kind of like... A strong man showing up and say, this is the answer. This is the solution. These are the people that are at fault. We're going to go after them. We're going to return back to that time that was so great for all of us when everything was perfect. Right. And now let's bring it down even further to the psychological level. When there's disintegration psychologically, you suppress you hate this part of yourself, you repressed it, you can't look at it, you don't want to face it, there's an avoidance that happens. It comes out in other ways. It's like you've taken the mosquitoes out, but then you replaced it with something else. So that's called, you put you put drugs in its place. And that's an unsustainable way to compensate for this part of yourself that you've suppressed. And now you're getting your false self-esteem or escapism through a substance. But then that has ripple effects to something else because now it affects your sleep or your work or your relationship. This is again related to the last episode where we're talking about like me thinking that everyone's going to reject me at the speech. I would then maybe start lashing out at people like, I'm going to tell you what I think first and chaos there. And then that'll get me the result I'm fearing. Right. Yeah. Chaos and rigidity kind of happen simultaneously. So rigidity is like the reaction to chaos. Chaos is happening around you. And so your reaction to it is to, I'm going to be stalwart and not adaptive because this is the bulwark between me and the chaos. Is that kind of how you're seeing it? Yeah. I mean, someone in full-blown addiction, it's it's highly chaotic. They're roller coaster chaos. In what ways are they rigid then? Well, if you tried to have a reasonable conversation about what's actually happening and they're in complete denial, there will likely be a very rigid response like what are you talking about what's none of your business i'm not this or i'm a victim of this or you have no right to judge me like there's going to be usually a very reactive entrenched defense mechanism defensiveness yeah and this hence motivational interviewing as a way to subvert defenses because it's a highly flexible communication style that rolls with resistance in this rigidity of the interpersonal situation rolls with resistance is actually one of the terms of it isn't it it's actually yeah part of the technique yeah yeah there we go judo verbal judo it's amazing. Honestly, I can't sing its praises enough. Whole episode on it again. We've been like pitching all of our episodes today. Uh, actually, it's been happening recently because like they all tie in. That's exactly the point of the, the podcast is to like talk about concepts and show like some people think that the more you understand the world, the more explain it, the less magical it is. And I think that's not true. That's actually the opposite. The more I understand the world, you're like, holy crap, like all this stuff, everything big is a bigger version of everything small and like everything's so interrelated. And honestly, it's impossible to be nationalistic or extremely selfish when you see just how tied all of us are. We screw that country. That's going to come back in other ways. Like America and China's relationship is a good example over the past like 50 years. They outsourced all their work. And then now that they've made a lot of money, China, they're coming back and buying those companies that outsource all that stuff. And the Americans are like, why is everything Chinese now? Some I've heard. So it's like, these all are interrelated and there's no free lunch. Basically, we have to take care of each other or else it's going to come and destroy us. I like that. That's another level of integration or disintegration that we talked about ecological, societal, and psychological. I think what you talked 
context where there's international relations, which is just above societal. Or economics, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, kind of above that society. It's intersocietal integration versus disintegration. I guess I kind of just break it down as like different organisms, like individuals, cells, ideas, companies, countries, ecosystems. Like they all could be seen as organisms. Like a forest is regarded as a single organism that's all working together. So like you can kind of break it all down as like between two organisms, this is how it will tend to go, I guess, right? Yeah, and, and this was a really interesting tangent from self-handicapping and we could have done a whole episode on it. I'm trying to tie it back in now. Yeah, yeah I see that. Yeah, I don't know. We can just recap, I guess, because <laughs> I ran out of material like halfway through and I'm like, wow, we can just talk about stuff that's kind of related. Free association. So I guess self-handicapping, there's two forms. What are they, Steve? <laughs> you on the spot. <laughs> I told him not to research too much on this one so that I could surprise him with some stuff because I know he's vaguely familiar. So this time it's not his fault. There's behavioral and there's claims. So there's the ways we actually screw ourselves and the ways we just claim to be have been screwed. And I guess it's better to focus on procedure than it is to focus on outcomes, focus on values, as you said. How would you elaborate the values part? Focus on process. Am I showing up in line with the way I want to be as a person. Yeah, am I being the version of myself I want to be? Yeah, versus like, am I being impressive? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what do they think of me? Easier said than done. Easier said than done, 100%. Yeah, a lot of practice there. What else? Sucking at something is the first step of being sort of good to something. Oh, focusing on self-affirmations, like things that you've done in the past that you value, that you did. Like, I gave a speech, like a best man speech. There we go. Like, that's something I can look back and say, like, look, I did that thing. And that goes back again to exposure therapy kind of stuff. And focus on learning, basically. Just focus on the fact that you're getting better and like you never beat yourself up. Well, you might have, but I was going to say you don't beat yourself up for like not getting perfect on an essay in, in high school. So like just see this as practice. You're you're learning the ropes. You're getting better. If you know you did something wrong, then don't beat yourself up for that either. It's done. There's nothing that can be done about it. But the future still exists. So we can focus on not doing that in the future. Having self-compassion there, that, that helps to not continue doing this. Yeah, and if you don't know how to have self-compassion... Just imagine, what would you say to someone who's going through the same situation you're describing right now that you're going through? Imagine, okay, I'd say something like, well, it's all right, you tried your best, it sounds like it was was really difficult. And so kind of speaking to yourself in these self-compassionate ways rather than like, stupid, worthless garbage. Because what that does, now I'm tying it back into into integration, what we talked about before, is when you are self-critical in that way, it's kind of suppressing one part of yourself that can't be just this group, this part is unacceptable. And what you suppress disintegrates the system, puts it offline and manifests in other ways. I think maybe that's the tie too. Yeah. Yeah. I'll go with that. So yeah, just when you see yourself doing something that's going to make you less effective or make your job more difficult, or you're making excuses to other people about what went wrong, these are forms of self-handicapping, especially if they're manifest. Like if you stayed up all night without actually doing what you're supposed to do or just being anxious and it's fine, we all do it, but the less we do it, probably the better we will be. You think we can end on that? Because it preserves a sense of an illusion of competence at the expense of actual competence, you know, and so that's the downside. And so focusing on what small thing can I do to get 1% better, just level up just a little bit. And again, it goes to this kind of realm of habits, habit stacking, atomic habits is a good book for that. But focusing on that small win, getting 1% better every day without having that pressure of it. Once I start writing my book, it has to be perfect and I have to have it all done at once. Yeah, every line must be perfect as soon as the ink leaves the pen. You want to do it the best you can, sure, but like get into the process of doing it and you can fix up and edit it later. Yeah, exactly that, exactly that. All right, I think we're good here. Thanks for tuning in. Hope to see you next time. And we don't have like a sign up or anything like that, so... 
Bye. Bye. Chicken ginger.